Okay, I want you to imagine your worst breakup. That one that was just especially tasteless. Maybe your ex dropped you over text or a particularly cruel phone call. Maybe you were ghosted. Now, what did you do after that breakup? Not like immediately after, but in the next, say, year. Did you travel the world in pursuit of yourself? Did you bury yourself in your schoolwork or work life, becoming a workaholic to stave off the pain? More than likely, you spent a day or two moping around, cried to your friends, and then tried your best to move on. I'll bet you one thing, though. I'll bet that you didn't board a flight to the most demanding job of your career, and then proceed to cry on demand dozens of times every day for an entire year, and then, for decades and decades after that, be told that you cried wrong. And I sure as hell bet that you weren't broken up with for a mutual friend. Previously on Texas Twiggy. The disaster that was the production of Popeye is twofold, and each part is related to a Bob. We have Bob Altman, director, also known in this episode as Regular Bob, with his absolutely asinine overspending and overcreating and overbuilding and honestly just overdoing of this film and its set. Then we have Bob Evans, known in the industry as Cocaine Evans, the producer of this film and the provider of mountains and mountains and mountains of cocaine to the cast and crew. And then his steamer trunks go missing, So Cocaine Bob is stuck on this rock in the middle of the ocean without his rocks. So, as one does, Cocaine Bob goes to the Maltese Prime Minister and asks for help finding his personal luggage. Except, he emphasizes to the PM, you cannot look inside the trunks when you find them. So then Cocaine Bob has to go to Henry Kissinger, who's actually a pretty good friend of his, and he tells Kissinger, look, The only way to save this movie is for you to write a backdated letter to the Prime Minister of Malta. You know, the guy who recently talked smack about the US and who also sides with Gaddafi, just telling him that he's a great dude. So that leaves seven possible addresses for Shelley. Five if you get rid of the two I sent reaching out to old production company addresses. Four if you don't count the one that looks like an empty lot when you look at the street view on Google Maps. But I think I'm realizing that there might be a more efficient way. And that is the magic of Facebook. Welcome to episode four of Texas Twiggy, a podcast about Shelley Duvall. I'm Emma Lehman, a longtime Shelley admirer and the producer and narrator of this podcast. Today, we'll talk about a love triangle involving Shelley, Carrie Fisher, and Paul Simon, and we'll begin to cover The Shining. So settle in, because this is a big one. Forewarning, this episode talks briefly about a relationship between an adult man and a child. So, The Shining is the first Shelley film that I'm confident in saying you've definitely heard of, if not seen. It has a total cult following, most of which comprises Kubrick Bros, and has spawned several analysis movies and a novel-length Wikipedia page. There is so much Shining lore that you could absolutely make a podcast solely about that. But this is a podcast about Shelley Duvall, so we'll start there. At the very end of 1977, Shelley met Paul Simon while shooting Annie Hall, a Woody Allen film that I really, really like, enough to somehow separate my opinion of the film from my knowledge of its director. And let me tell you, they made quite the couple. 
I don't know if this is widely known information, but Paul Simon is short. Like, Paul Simon is 5'3", and in my humble personal opinion, he did not know how to dress, at least in the 70s. So you have this sort of tall, lanky, ethereal, and unusual goddess that is Shelley Duvall, and then... Paul. My favorite photo of Shelley and Paul has got to be this one that Lee Unkrich, a director and screenwriter who runs a website directed to The Shining and to whose work we will return later, posted on Twitter in 2013. It's Shelley and Paul at Studio 54, a disco club in L.A., in 1978. Shelley, in a flowy floral dress and heeled boots, towers lithely over the stout Simon who wears a blue suit and a button-up shirt that is, unfortunately, not at all buttoned up. She's looking down on him endearingly, almost maternally, as he engages in what I can describe as dancing only because of the context. Okay, maybe I'm being too harsh, but let me explain why. Paul and Shelley were together for three years, from 1977 up until the tail end of 79. In 1977, Simon had just been nominated for Record of the Year for his album 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. You don't need to be coy, Roy. You just listen to me. Hop on the bus. Now, while leaving your lover for a close friend of hers to whom she introduced you immediately before she is about to step on a plane to fly overseas to film the most physically and mentally taxing project of her decades-long career, was not enumerated in this little tune as one of those ways, Paul seems to think that it is a way to leave your lover. And in 1980, as Shelley was about to board a plane to fly to London to film The Shining, for which she was famously criticized for her crying abilities, Paul met her at the airport to tell her that he was leaving her for their now mutual friend, Carrie Fisher. Yeah. And look, I wouldn't really expect much more from Paul Simon. This is a guy who literally dated a child when he was a fully grown man. Is this common knowledge? Yeah, the guy dated a 16-year-old when he was 22. Her name was Kathy, and she was the muse for Kathy's song. She's even on the cover of his 1965 album, The Paul Simon Songbook. It's almost too on the nose. They're sitting there playing with what look like stuffed toys, and she is so clearly a child, while there sits Paul, a full adult man in a brown sweater and Oxfords. But I digress. Paul's brutal breakup didn't seem to strain Shelley's relationship with either Carrie or Simon, as crazy as that is. Carrie appeared on Shelley's children's program, Fairytale Theater, as Thumbelina just four years later, and Paul even appeared as Simple Simon in Shelley's Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme in 1990. And maybe it's just me, but Shelley, who wrote, produced, and directed Mother Goose, seems to be throwing some serious shade at Paul. Like, first of all, he's literally Simple Simon. And, well, here's a few clips. It's just a way. Sissy, you shouldn't talk to strangers. No one's stranger than you. Except him, maybe. Who's that? It's Simple Simon. Let's give him a ride. Look, we don't have time to stop, and we don't have room. He's just a little guy. Please, can't we stop and pick him up? He's such a simple guy. Ah, the same idea. Gordon, don't make fun. He's simple. What? Carrie and Paul were a famously, or perhaps infamously, passionate couple. So much so that Carrie once called off a marriage to Dan Aykroyd to get back together with Paul. They were married from 1983 to 1984, and then got divorced, and then dated again. Carrie was in a number of Paul's music videos and was the inspiration for the songs Hearts and Bones and Graceland. The arc of a love affair 
rainbows in the high desert air. So yeah, this whole Paul Simon and Carrie Fisher debacle really contributes to the emotional exhaustion of the next few years. From that fateful day at the airport through the early 1980s, Shelley was part of the wildest, most taxing, but most defining production of her career. Straight off the breakup, of course, she flew to London to begin production on The Shining, which is, at this point, infamous for its toll on its actors. And honestly, everyone on set that wasn't Stanley Kubrick. So first, I implore you to go watch The Shining. It's a wonderful film, equal parts horror, psychological thriller, and a chronicling of the first insidious and eventually rapid unraveling of the traditional nuclear family. It's based on a novel of the same name by author Stephen King, whose catalog includes It, Carrie, and Salem's Lot. To keep the summary both brief and free from spoilers, Wendy Torrance, that's Shelley, is convinced something is wrong with her son, who says he has an imaginary friend that lives in his mouth. I don't think you have anything to worry. The scene where she's sitting talking to the social worker about what could be wrong with her son is where we get that lovely image of Shelley in her red long sleeve with her blue checkered apron, sucking on a skinny cigarette, half of which is ash. What was the matter with him? Mrs. Torrance, most of the time these episodes with kids are never explained. They're brought on by emotional factors and they rarely occur again. Meanwhile, Wendy's husband, Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, is hired to care for the Overlook Hotel during the winter off-season. His employer briefly mentions that the previous caretaker lost his mind, murdering his wife and two daughters brutally in the hotel. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? I don't believe they did. Uh, My predecessor in this job hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker, and he had a good employment record, good references, and from what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, (laughs) killed his family with an axe. Stacked them neatly in one of the rooms of the West Wing, and uh, then he uh, he put uh, both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. Jack brings his wife and their son Danny, played by Danny Lloyd, who's one of the only actors that made it out of this thing okay and is now a high school biology teacher, seemingly quite well-adjusted, go Danny, out to the hotel, where they meet the caretaker Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers. Do you know how I knew your name was Doc? Dick notices that Danny has this strange back-of-mouth friend and seems to be able to see things that others can't. He calls this The Shining and says he can do it too. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I can remember when I was a little boy, my grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it Shining. After he shows them around the Overlook, Dick leaves the family in the big, empty, incredibly haunted hotel, and for the rest, you'll just have to watch the film. The Shining is about a man and a woman who have a son with a special gift. The husband takes employment at a hotel during the winter season, very high in the mountains, very isolated, and something happens. 
Production of The Shining was traumatic for Shelley. Director Stanley Kubrick, whose other films include 2001 A Space Odyssey, Eyes Wide Shut, and A Clockwork Orange, had already developed a reputation as an extraordinarily nitpicky, fastidious, and controlling director. Keep in mind, nearly Shelley's entire acting career had to this point been with Robert Altman, whose style was so hands-off that he once told a co-collaborator on the set of Popeye that he, quote, didn't like to direct his actors at all. Kubrick, by contrast, was known for doing snippets of scenes over literally hundreds of times and for his method direction. You've probably heard of method acting. You know, Jared Leto gains 70 pounds in a few months and gets gout to play John Lennon. Robert Pattinson makes himself vomit and pees himself during filming of The Lighthouse. Nicolas Cage gets teeth removed without anesthesia to play a Vietnam veteran in Birdie. It's putting yourself in the shoes of your character, both on and offset, doing for real what could be done with prosthetics, inhabiting a frame of mind, not only different from your usual, but generally harmful to your psyche and your body. You want to play a heavier character? You gain the weight. You want to play someone who's been in immeasurable pain? You inflict it upon yourself. You want to play an alcoholic? You develop alcoholism. Method directing is kind of the same thing. You want terror out of your actors, so you terrify them. You want exhaustion, so you exhaust them. You want desperation, so you deprive them. Kubrick was big into method directing. And who in The Shining was the one who was supposed to be the most terrified, the most dejected, the most overwhelmed? That's right. Wendy Torrance. Or, if you're a method director, Shelley Duvall. Wow, it's gorgeous out. What a beautiful day to subscribe, rate, and review Texas Twiggy on your favorite podcasting platform. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Radio Public. Wherever you're listening, it helps out a lot if you follow, subscribe, review, rate, and comment on the show. Texas Twiggy wouldn't be what it is without you. Shelley's experience on this movie starts, of course, with the breakup and route to set, which was in London. They'd built a functional, full replica of a different hotel that already existed back in the States, in the UK. If you're wondering why, it's so Kubrick could have more complete control over the lighting and set dressing, also because they needed to build a maze for reasons that will become clear when you watch it. Shelley was actually one of the only actors on this movie that fully moved themselves to London. So not only is she hurting, she's isolated physically and emotionally from her family, friends, and many animals. Both of Shelley's brothers remember her time in London as having been long, drawn out, and so isolating that she was already feeling overwhelmed and lonely before principal filming even got underway. They would visit her, though infrequently, and remember realizing that they, along with other family or any kind of touchstone, were not welcome. Shane remembers it like this. And he was, he was hard on her. He was real hard on her. He didn't even like the fact, I understand he didn't really care for the fact that she had family there when I was there because he didn't, he wanted her to feel secluded and everything like in the role she was playing. He, of course, is Stanley Kubrick. 
So, so, and I didn't actually find that out until later, but uh, which surprised me. But it, it but I, I totally understood why she spent so much time out there and why I couldn't go out to the set more. They didn't want me out there because they didn't want her having a personal touching home relationship, you know. And Stuart, well, he puts it more bluntly. Yeah, she, Shelly just about had a nervous breakdown over there in London with that. She, it was a very, 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 he's a very difficult dude, you know. That very, very, very difficult dude is a plump, sort of greasy-looking man with wire-framed glasses and a mess of unkempt black hair, though not much of it is on the top of his head. His eyebrows don't quite meet in the middle, but they come within a pencil's distance of each other and join into one when he furrows his brow, which he does often. Even before The Shining, the director's reputation preceded him. Yeah, and he, uh, he you know, because he would do like 99 takes of shit. Oh, yeah. You know, and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, of just Jack, you know, whatever, standing there at the end, giving the last speech, you know, so we could get the angles right and everything. He did. Uh... Among his method direction techniques was what Stu is talking about here. Literally hundreds of takes of Shelley's scenes until her exhaustion and horror was not only palpable, but entirely real. He did uh, many, many takes of the, the most infamous scene ever of Shelley's career, it seems like. In The Shining, with the crack in the door, you know, Jack looking through the door and Shelley sitting there screaming with the knife. He made Jack use a real freaking axe and really chop down those doors until he got the right crack, you know. And she said he was using a real axe and chopping down real doors. And, uh, and when she was dragging his fat ass into the freezer, that was really Shelly dragging real Jack into that freezer. And she said, he was, oh my God, he was so heavy, oh you know? <laughs> it's true. Pretty much everything you see Shelly do at the hotel is real. She's really that scared. She's really that exhausted. She's really the glue to the family. Every day, Shelley's time on set would consist of gaslighting, abuse, and screaming, whether it was by, at, to, or about her. The staircase scene. What are you doing down here? Where Wendy is pursuing Jack languidly, sobbing and swinging with a wooden baseball bat. I just uh, wanted to talk to you. Was shot 127 times. It currently holds the record for the most takes ever for one scene. Shelley's look of distress, her trembling hands and unsteady steps, it's all real. In 1992, she told Terry Gross about her ordeal 12 years earlier, remembering it as though it were yesterday. Oh, Robert Altman's famous for his wonderful first takes. <laughs> you know, many, many, many... Uh, Shots in his films are first takes and one and only takes. And with Kubrick, I don't think anything's printed before the 35th take. <laughs> and that's after about 50 videotaped rehearsals with the playback. So it was a very, very difficult experience for me to change over to that style. Um, plus the nature of the role was that I had to be uh, very upset uh, the, for most of the film. For, so for nine months out of that one year and one month of shooting. I had to be crying and hysterical and hyperventilating. And that's physically almost impossible to do. I did do it. I don't think that I could ever do it again. Um, I had to cry 
he expected full tears on first rehearsal. And I kept trying to explain to him, Stanley, you don't understand. I'm losing all my water weight here. I mean, more water weight than I have to give. And, you know, you just, it really wouldn't be that way in real life. One thing Stanley expected from Shelley was tears. Tears upon tears, the salty waterworks, on demand at all hours. Every day, Shelley would go to set, cry for hours at Kubrick's insistence, and then cry involuntarily from loneliness and stress and primal exhaustion in the limo back home. Her brothers say that her limo driver, the same driver that Eric Clapton had, weirdly enough, reported that Shelley would sob nearly every night on her way back. And then go into work the next day and do it all over again. Eventually, when the tears dried up, Shelley said she had a last resort. I have a, a favorite classical piece of music that I listen to, uh, uh, to cry. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece by Sir Thomas Tallis. Uh, it's called The Lark Ascending. And uh, he's an English composer. And it's uh, performed by St. Martin in the Fields, conducted by Neville Mariner. And if you have that in your collection, you could play it. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I listened to that, and when that violin would hit that, those higher notes. Uh, it worked every time. <laughs> Except for uh, a few times when I just literally dried up, I was so exhausted. In the end, Shelley came away from The Shining with a broken heart, bronchitis, fewer pounds, and what I feel comfortable armchair diagnosing as a case of PTSD. There's this behind-the-scenes film made about The Shining by Kubrick's daughter Vivian. You can find it for free on YouTube, and it's only about 30 minutes. And this one part where Shelley shows Stanley a hair that's fallen from her scalp. Her hair, she later said, was falling out in great chunks. Look at this. Pulled all my hair. I pulled hunks of hair out on the windowsill. And the back got cut. Major trim. Hunks of hair. Oh, look. Okay. It just comes okay, out. Right now, fellas. Kubrick disregards her. Then he mocks her. And then he asks for another take. From May until October, I was really in and out of ill health because the stress of the role was so great and the, the stress of being away from home, just uprooted and moved somewhere else. And I had just gotten out of a relationship. And um, so for me, it was just tumultuous. And after all this, when Shelley was finally allowed to pack up and go home, 
critical reception of The Shining was brutal. And rarely, if ever, was Shelley's PTSD-inducing, enduringly traumatic performance even mentioned. She told Ebert, After I made The Shining, all that work, hardly anyone even criticized my performance in it, even to mention it, it seemed like. The reviews were all about Kubrick, like I wasn't there. Perhaps with a star director such as Kubrick, critics get mesmerized by his name and forget the actors. Now, if you're a little confused here, don't worry. The Shining recently went through a critical reevaluation, which saw it reconsidered as one of the best horror films of the century, a classic. But in 1980, it wasn't seen that way. But it was certainly well known. After the film, I actually went to get a soda at a nearby McDonald's. And I was coming out with my soda and this car full of boys, teenage boys, yelled out, Hey, Wendy! And then he went, here's Johnny! And I'm thinking, you know, it will be a long time before I hear that line. Here's Johnny! And even now, Shelley's Wendy is not given the appreciation she demands as a character who carries not only the Torrance family, but the film itself. I... I can't really remember. I can't remember. This is tape of me at 5.43 in the morning reading a text from a man named Ryan Obermeyer. My search for Shelley started with a 2018 story in The Hollywood Reporter by Seth Abramovich, specifically with a couple sentences right at the end. It's a wonderful piece, one of exceptionally few touchstones revealing Shelley to the world since her 2002 exit. There are beautiful photographs of Shelley, Older, of course, with a warm smile looking hopefully into the distance as her gray and white hair is picked up by a soft breeze. In 2018, Duval was paid a visit by Ryan Obermeyer, an artist from nearby Austin who grew up with fairy tale theater and was concerned for her welfare. I brought a postcard of one of my paintings. Ryan Obermeyer, I thought, there's a starting point. A quick search revealed he is a visual artist in Austin making dark, fantasy-like, brooding photographs that are a marriage of Salvador Dali and René Magritte. He also, I found, makes coloring books. Of Shelley. So, naturally, I bought two. One fairy tale theater themed and one with the greatest hits, Three Women, The Shining, Mother Goose, Rock and Rhyme. The link to purchase a coloring book, the proceeds of which go directly to Shelley herself, will be in the show notes. You can even get one signed by Shelley. And, of course, pages I've colored are up on the Patreon. From Ryan's Instagram, it seemed that he did indeed take Shelley out to lunch pretty regularly. Every once in a while, there would be a photo of her, beaming next to a coloring book or over a pair of birthday candles or signing some memorabilia. I direct messaged him, knowing that he probably gets dozens of those, 
How's Shelley? Where's Shelley? Can I meet Shelley? You know. But one thing that journalists do not possess in great quantity is shame. So I plowed ahead. Hi, Ryan. My name is Emma Lehman, and I'm an undergrad at UCLA, independently producing a podcast about Shelley Duvall. I was wondering if you'd be interested in talking with me for the podcast, as you two have such a wonderful friendship, and I want to get as many That's next time on Texas Twiggy. Next time on Texas Twiggy. For this episode, I talked to a lot of really cool, really smart people. Because essentially you're trying to, you're trying to document something that is inherently ephemeral. And I think that that, the nature of that just seems kind of futile. And that futility, I think, is super interesting. About a really cool film. If you haven't seen The Shining, this episode might not make a whole lot of sense. So go do that if you haven't. You won't regret it, I promise. Problem. I have a I have a deaf cat down here uh, who might make an appearance. That's Bilge Ibiri, a journalist and filmmaker whose deaf cat I unfortunately never saw enter the frame, but whose presence was felt nonetheless. Bilge authored a piece in Vulture magazine, and therein lies another lens through which we can interpret Shelley's Wendy in the context of The Shining. And that is a trope called the Final Girl. Texas Twiggy is reported, narrated, and produced by me, Emma Lehman. Our music is created and mixed by Olivia Springberg. Our research consultant is Sarah Lukowski. Special thanks to Avery Erskine for transcribing interviews, giving notes on endless drafts, and proofreading scripts. Thank you to my patrons, Ken Lehman, Dwayne Lehman, Xavier Hamill, Jose Armenta, Justine Springberg, Kelly Alasser, Liz Wheeler, Kay Dacity, Sharon, Sarah Elizabeth, Dan Travis, and Sophia Pulido. Join me next week, and don't forget to rate and review the show on your podcast player.